1: it's partly about giving people role models that look like them and i think that really does matter it's very hard when you look at an organization and don't see anybody who looks like you to believe that organization values you and i think therefore we have to have a more diverse leadership in some of these organizations we, that matters in national security but we also have to help the people along the journey believe that it's okay to be imperfect as you go, to take the setbacks and learn from them, as well as to then to enjoy the successes. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, we bring you the eighth installment of the Women in National Security miniseries, produced in collaboration with Accenture. In this special episode, our hosts Gay Brotman and Meg Tapia talk with their first international guest, Lindy Cameron, CEO of the UK's National Cyber Security Centre. Lindy highlights the need for the UK and Australia to openly share their experiences in dealing with cyber threats in order to increase both nations' capabilities. She explains her approach to partnering across government and industry sectors in an effort to enable citizens to participate confidently in the online world. Thanks for listening.
2: I'm Meg Tapia. And I'm Gabe Brotman. And before we kick off, we want to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people as the traditional custodians of Canberra and the surrounding areas where we meet today. Today, we are going international. We have in the studio, Lindy Cameron, CEO of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre. Lindy took on the role two years ago after more than two decades working in national security policy and crisis management in the UK and around the world, including in Africa, Asia and the Middle East. Lindy started her career in the private sector before moving to government, showing us that you can move between the two sectors and that the skills are interchangeable. Today, Lindy has a huge responsibility for defending UK citizens, businesses, and critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. Her agency's goal is to make the UK the safest place to live and work online.
1: Lindy, a big welcome to WinsPod and welcome to Australia. Thank you very much indeed. It's fantastic to be back here for the first time, I think, in sort of four and a half years. Oh, that's a long time. I know. Well, thanks to COVID, of course.
2: Lindy, I'd like to give our listeners some context. Can you tell us what brings you to Canberra?
1: What brings me to Canberra, and it's fantastic to be back in Australia for the first time in four and a half years, thanks to to COVID, um, is the chance to talk to some amazingly like-minded partners. We work really closely with our Australian counterparts here at the Australian Cybersecurity Center. Um, Avery Bradshaw is one of my closest international partners, partly because I think we see the same range of threats, the cyber criminality all the way through to state actors operating in cyberspace, but we also have a a deep and amazing partnership in thinking about how to tackle those threats uh, all the way into the future.
3: So, Lindy, what perspectives are you interested in and
1: what is it that you're wanting to discuss here? So, obviously, Australia very practically sits in a different geography to us. So, one of the interesting challenges is looking at the different range of state actor threats in this region. Um, Clearly, we say in the UK that we worry about four state actors in particular, Russia, China, Iran and North Korea. And obviously, in the UK, we've seen a particular focus on the Russia-Ukraine conflict over the last year, But actually, strategically, we think um, quite hard about the way that China influences future technology. And I'm conscious that Australia's geography gives it a particular focus on understanding the the wider region here and how that's affected. And that's something I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into and really understand from your academics, your think tanks, the wider government, how you're seeing some of those future strategic challenges and, and what you're thinking of doing about them.
2: In your inaugural address, you had said that the UK needs to be clear-eyed about Chinese ambition in technological advancement. What is it that we need to be clear-eyed about in your
1: view and and how is it that we respond to this ambition? So I think we've seen in the past Chinese interest in acquiring intellectual property in particular and I think we need to be clear-eyed rather than naive about where that's happening, how it's happening. And I think we've seen in particular our academic sector being more realistic about what's really happening in that space. I think that we also just need to be honest about how huge a market and how huge a producer China is. China absolutely, the size and scale of their market alone is shaping the technology that people are able to buy and indeed is a huge part of the customer base for technology that is bought. That's something we need to be very honest about and it's something we need to be clear where we want there to be choices. And I think in particular, we need to understand, for example, in things like Internet of Things technology, where data is held, how it's used, to be confident that the technology that our consumers are buying is used in a way that's consistent with the values that we, that we share. So I think it's about being honest about some of these challenges and making sure we're really digging into them to, to understand uh, what we want for the future. So how do we go about codifying our values in that technology? That's a really good question. Uh, Quite a tricky one, I think. So I think some of it is about making sure that we're not simply having a tech conversation amongst techies without connecting it to the broader conversation about values and political systems. Uh, Sometimes I worry a little bit that in cybersecurity, we are very good at talking to other people who are good at cybersecurity. And actually, one of the things I want to do is break that conversation out um, into a broader community. So perhaps the best example of that is making sure that when we talk about risk and resilience, we're not just having a CISO to CISO conversation. Mm. We're actually making sure that CEOs really understand the kind of cyber threats that they face and how to make their organizations resilient in the kind of way they talk to their lawyers about the legal risks or their accountants or their chief financial officers about the kind of operational and financial risks. And that should be a, a conversation between generalists and experts, but one that's not intimidating or exclusive, one that helps to make sure that organizations understand the practicalities of the, frankly, the operational systems that could go down the data and where it's held in a way that then means you're taking decisions about the kind of technology you use, about where your data is held, that you're confident if I'm honest, you could stand up in front of a, a media audience and defend when something goes wrong. One of the things we really try and get people to do through using, for example, exercises like our exercise in the box tool is getting them to think about what happens if a cyber criminal goes after you. And I think in many ways getting people to think about the cybercriminality threat helps them then on the journey of behaviours that will make them more resilient to an even more sophisticated range of threats. I mean, we say the vast majority of cyber attacks that we see Um, could have been prevented if people had followed the guidance we'd already given them. It's it's a bit depressing at times, to be honest. And that's guidance as simple as, you know, making sure you've got a a decent password for your main email account, making sure you don't reuse passwords, you've got an offline backup of your data. It's it's what we give people. I think you talk about the essential eight here. We give people advice in our cyber aware campaign in the UK about these online behaviors. So a lot of the very simple things that people just still don't do by default and that we don't make it easy for people to do our behaviors that we want to shift people onto and, and to increase their resilience. And then we want people to be thinking, well, what happens if that goes wrong? And actually, criminals in particular exploit people at that moment of panic. They exploit businesses too at that moment of panic where you're on the back foot, your data's locked up, you've got a ransomware demand. At that point, if you know that could happen, you pull out your plan. You work out what you tell your customers. You work out what you tell your shareholders. You work out what you tell the markets. You have a backup system of some kind you can use. You know where your data is held and what's at risk. You don't suddenly discover that you've got sensitive customer data held in a system you, you you didn't realize was vulnerable. And if you have a plan, then the recovery is much faster. And what we see is that the market rewards organizations that have recovered successfully. So this is possible. It's not an impossible thing you should run away from. It's something we think you should run towards And from our perspective, ideally be transparent about, because what we want is organizations telling the stories of how they've done that, both to make sure others realize it could happen to them, but actually that there are ways to to get through this. One of the biggest lessons we've seen in the Russia-Ukraine context is how resilient Ukraine has been. And it's been an extraordinary story of a country that, to be honest, had a pretty decent idea of what, what might hit them in a conflict because they'd experienced quite significant cyber incidents before, um, some of which we've attributed to Russia. And because they had a decent understanding of what the threat looked like, I think they were reasonably well prepared, but they've also been able to become more resilient um, over time as a result of support from ourselves and indeed partners in the private sector um, in a way that I think has told a story about um, the possibility rather than the sort of inevitability of failure in a way that I think is quite exciting and a great example for other countries and other nations.
3: So what lessons can we learn from the Ukrainian experience in building that cyber resilience because it's a very contemporary example.
1: It's a really contemporary example. So I think the key lessons would be have a great understanding of the threat you're facing. So what kind of organisation are you? Who is interested in you? Are you a target of cyber criminals because they think they can exploit you to make money? Are you of interest to state actors? So, for example, we would say that think tanks, universities tend to be of slightly more interest to state actors than they sometimes realise um, and understanding that then helps you to think about the kind of data that you have that you would be prepared to have accessed by people who are not authorised. So understand the threat you face, game through what's going to happen, and work out what decisions you're prepared to take, how you make those trade-offs about, for example, you know, systems you shut down, data you protect, you know, how you recover, and be prepared to be public and defend that. But also know who to look for for, for help. You know, There are some fantastic... Uh, offers like that, uh, we use some amazing uh, critical incident response companies in our recovery and in cyber incidents in the UK. And um, you know, there are some great people that can help build capacity, but also help to respond. And then I think share experience with partners. So we've had fantastic conversations about you know, lessons that we've learned. You know, for example, um, that I think have helped to build the capacity of, of other countries. And that's that's I think part of what we all need to do.
3: And in terms of the conversations that you're having, are you're talking to the private sector, the public sector, the civilian, the military environments. I know that in the past, you're very keen to draw the thread through those organisations and get them talking together and sharing information. So why is it important to actually have them all working together and singing off the same song sheet, so to speak?
1: I think it's not just about having them singing off the same song sheet, it's actually about getting the best from all of the different perspectives that people bring. So when we created the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK six years ago now, we stood back and thought about why it was that the brilliant cybersecurity advice that we were giving people wasn't landing in the way we needed it to. And part of it was that we weren't listening hard enough to our customers. We weren't understanding the perspectives that small businesses you know, had on what the threats they saw were and what they needed in terms of advice from us or... Or actions from us to help do something about that. So what we find in terms of our engagement with business is that there's both deep capability that the private sector brings, us, frankly, things that we can't do, but also things that give a level of scale to the insight that we have that is a massive force multiplier. But also, it gives us a perspective on, on practically how to ensure that the actions we want people to take actually land. So we, for example, have a socio-technical research team who help us to understand whether we're actually getting traction on advice we've given. And that's why we've Developed advice, for example, and things like using three random words for passwords. Ways to make our advice memorable and actionable to make sure that everybody can have the confidence to make themselves safer in this digital environment. Because I think one of the key opportunities um, is giving people the confidence to operate safely in the digital and online world. This is not simply a a high-end threat issue where we worry about very sophisticated Cyber actors. This is about giving citizens and small businesses the confidence to be able to to use digital technology um, and enhance our collective prosperity. To be frank, it's it's as much about prosperity as it is about security, and that's why the private sector is so important. But the private sector also now is so fundamental to the technology we use, operates at such scale that we learn as much from them as they do from us, and that partnership of the the high end insight that we bring as a highly specialist and capable technical organization, but also an organization that brings the intelligence insight that comes from being part of our GCHQ, the Global Communications Headquarters, UK Signals Intelligence Agency, bringing that together with the insight we get from the private sector who are facing customers every day, but also building the technology that works for the future, I think makes us all much greater than the sum of our parts.
2: Clearly, it's important that we bring government, industry and academia together to solve for the cyber challenge, but governments play a really important role in this. So how is it that as governments, we can partner together in the broader sense? And why is it that these sorts of agreements matter?
1: So I think governments have a really key role in understanding how to regulate, how to shape markets, but also actually how to protect their citizens. So we have a huge interest in making sure that everybody is able to participate in the online world, including those who don't necessarily think of it as a priority. So I, for example, am really focused on making sure that the skills base we have in the UK is a really diverse skills base for the cybersecurity industry that ensures that the cyber technology sector of the future is not simply populated by the people it is today, but actually reflects society as a whole. So I think governments have a real... Job to try and both understand the threat, to build the national resilience, to understand the future technology that we will be um, facing and able to take advantage of, but also then to think about how it is we act together to ensure in particular as democracies that the values that, that we share are really codified in the technology we use. And I think that's something where we in Australia have a huge amount in common. So it is fantastic to be able to talk to partners that, broadly speaking, see the challenges and threats in the same way um, and have the same kind of approach to wanting our citizens to be able to participate in the online world frankly to be able to challenge us. I mean, one of the things we're very proud of is that we are open and transparent about the way that, that we use intelligence, about the way that we want to shape technology. And I think that's something we share across these nations in a way that makes it a really constructive partnership. But governments are, as we've said before, only part of that. And I think one of the things we've been most proud of in NCSC is how we have really deeply embedded the private sector with us. So we run a scheme called I-100, which helps individuals from the private sector to come and work with us in NCSC, be embedded with us, use the same technology in a way that really helps to co-create the solutions to some of the challenges that we face. And that 's been a real innovation for the intelligence community it 's also been a real innovation. I think for many parts of government it 's one of the most innovative schemes i 've seen across government, and it helps us to make sure that we 're not simply living in a bubble thinking that we know everything but actually that we 're really open to challenge and open to new ideas
2: Lindy, you've clearly stepped into this role and now understand that cyber landscape extremely well, but you don 't have a STEM background i don 't know that 's right no. <laughs> Very much a wider national security background. Right. And so you came into this role without that background. Um, I want to ask you two things. The first is, why do you think you were chosen for this role, (laughs) given you don't have that background? And the other is, how has that
1: helped you? Great questions. So I got a phone call from the head of GCHQ saying, would you be interested in applying for this job? And I said, I'm not a cybersecurity expert. He said, the organisation is filled with cybersecurity experts. We need somebody who can lead it. Uh, And I think that I come to this with a much wider set of Crisis leadership, that means that I am not phased by the kind of critical incidents we saw with you know, solar winds or the colonial pipeline hack. In many ways, that's the bread and butter of what I've been doing for most of my career. But also what I've been doing across government for a number of years is, is what I always think of as systems leadership. So thinking about how it is you bring the whole team together. Make us more than the sum of our parts. No one organisation can make us resilient as a nation to cyber threats. We need to be acting across the whole of government, but also, as we've said, the whole of the private sector and indeed society as a whole. And I think thinking about how we all get the best out of each other, bring our strengths to the party, is something I've I've done before. It's also been really helpful to have the kind of foreign policy background that I've got. Um, I've spent most of my career working internationally um, for the UK's Department for International Development, our Foreign Office, our Cabinet Office. In a whole series of of countries overseas. And so it comes as second nature to think about how we do this from a global perspective um, as partners, not just on a national perspective. And I think very much our top priority is to keep the UK the safest place to live and work online. But I think we do that best by sharing our expertise with partners and thinking about where we can work together most effectively. And that's particularly true of countries like Australia. So I come to this with a wider set of skills, but it has been quite a challenge. I think the biggest challenge actually has been starting in COVID. So getting to know a highly technical organisation and a highly technical sector – uh, when you're engaging on a set of video conferences at a distance definitely was a bit of a challenge for an extrovert like me. And I am absolutely delighted to be able to escape the the rainy UK of for while. Well, is a remarkably nice Australian winter. It's the first <laughs> time I've been in winter. Oh, <laughs> you, you say this, but this is a, the, the sun is out. It's fantastic. Um, so I think there's something about being able to, to get out and travel, to talk to counterparts um, that is really fundamental. It's been Quite a journey, but I do think it is really important for cybersecurity professionals not just to talk to each other, as I've said, but to make sure this is something that is mainstreamed as part of both our national security conversation, but also our wider resilience conversation. So, to give you an example, you know, our critical national infrastructure sectors have thought for a long time about how they respond to you know, floods, wars, extreme weather events. Uh, A lot of the technology they use was not designed to be connected to the internet. Part of what they need to do is translate the cyber threat we now face into the kind of technology they have that then amends and adjusts their own resilience planning to deal with those modern threats. I was lucky enough to do a fantastic course at the uh, University of Cambridge, uh, the Centre of Science and Policy which they set up for senior policymakers, um, to teach them about issues that they think they may not have learned about at university, but really need to understand in order to, to be leaders in the public sector going forward. And so they they sheeped up to us into a series of issues, China, CRISPR gene editing, quantum technology. And it made me really stand back and think, actually, I can't simply be a leader in national security based on the knowledge and experience I've built up in my own career. I have to stand back and think actually what are the skills and capabilities and areas of knowledge I will need for the future career I'm going to have and how do I really accelerate myself up that learning journey to do that. And that gave me the confidence, I think, to want to stretch into the tech space because I think it needs to be better connected to the, the wider long-standing national security debate but also actually to the economic debate. So I spent quite a bit of my career, as I say, working in international development thinking about how economies grow, how societies develop. And so for me, it's been natural to join up that debate on prosperity with that debate on security. And I think technology is really at the the heart of that future join up. It was a skill I wanted to develop and I think something I thought I had something to bring to.
0: We'll be right back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news.
3: So just, you mentioned the need to mainstream. So how do we go about mainstreaming and how do we get that people actually just adopting this as business as usual, from the individual to the small business person, critical infrastructure, government, think tanks, academics?
1: Never waste a good crisis, is what I say. So at the moment at which cybersecurity is in the news, often because something has gone wrong, so the Irish health system, for example, took a serious hit and ran somewhere a couple of years ago the Colonial Pipeline incident where fuel supplies to the east coast of the US were, uh, were temporarily cut off. At the moment where, where people are engaged and interested in the story, we have to be helping them think about what they would do if that was them. But also we have to, make, to be making it accessible. We have to be giving advice that works. And what we find is that means really thinking through the perspective that our customers have, not in a generic way, but sector by sector. So, for example, we've issued guidance to, to farmers in the UK who receive a single farm payment at a particular point in the year that makes them a very attractive target of cyber criminals right at that moment. And we want to hit them with the advice they need when they're most vulnerable from trusted partners they work with. So the agricultural and farming organizations that they get a lot of their generic advice from, we partner with them to make sure that actually they're helping them with good cybersecurity advice. Same with, for example, the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, some of the business bodies that are giving businesses advice on changing government policy, on changing tax regimes, we want to embed the cybersecurity thinking into that. So it's not a special different thing that you do as an add-on. It's part of the way you look at risk and part of the capability that you need to build. And we find that by doing that with sectors, by understanding how they best communicate to the, the organizations in their sector, and by equipping them with the knowledge, then we can do that much better. Because I think otherwise people think, great, but that's not really aimed at me. I do think we need to think about individuals in particular because none of us have a completely separate work and personal life anymore. We use the same devices at work as we do at home and educating people as individuals to be better at cybersecurity for themselves at home, thinking about turning on two-factor authentication, for example, thinking about how to make sure they're not reusing passwords. All of that actually makes them better employees at work as well. I I joked that I was I grew up with a dad who worked in personnel management and health and safety and so I really understood after the umpteenth time I was told to put my seatbelt on uh, that actually, you know, the, the way you behaved at home affected how responsible you were as an employee at work, you know, whether you stuck your hand in the machine or not. So so people thinking about their own personal safety and security actually affects then how they behave as employees, and that helps businesses go up the curve. We still have a huge challenge, I think, though, to build the high end skills we need and it 's one of the conversations i 've been having here in Australia is how collectively we try and ensure that our education systems are building the kind of stem skills for the future, and then specifically the cyber skills for the future that means that we 've got the workforce who who start their work journey sufficiently tech enabled that employees don 't have to start from scratch. Um, when they start work, but also actually that we can then take advantage of the fantastic range of economic opportunities that are there for nations that can build those digital skills. I think that's still quite a journey for for all of us, actually.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned their STEM and STEM training. You run a program for girls in the UK, the Cyber Girls Program, and I understand over 55,000 girls have participated in that so far.
1: Can you tell us a bit about the program and what you hope to achieve through it? Yeah, it's one of the best points of my year, I have to say. So handing out the prizes to very excited 12 and 13-year-old girls <laughs> um, is a is a wonderful moment of feeling as if you were helping to open up a set of possibilities they hadn't thought about as individuals, but also to try and shape that workforce of the future. And it matters a lot to me personally that the workforce of the future is not as undiverse as, to be honest, the cyber tech workforce of today is. Um, certainly in the UK, it is you know, still too male. I think there are plenty of opportunities for women. Women were some of the early pioneers of computing. Mm-hmm. So, yes, here so as well. when anybody talks to me about Alan Turing, we always you know, remind them about the, um, the the female coders and techies who, who helped them on that journey. So I think there's something about making sure there are enough women in technology. There's also something about making sure that we we are representative certainly of the UK as a whole in all of its diversity. So we run our Cyber UK annual conference in different parts of the United Kingdom. And next year, we're going to Belfast, which really excites me because I'm Northern Irish, to make sure this is not a London-centric thing. It's not simply for places that have tech jobs already. But on the Cyber First Girls program, what we do is basically run a competition for girls for, for schools to help girls in those schools get a bit of a taste of solving cyber problems. It's, it's pretty fun, to be honest. It runs over a few... Uh, weekdays and weekends, we make it as easy for as possible as the teachers. We're conscious that a lot of schools don't have some of the expert teaching capacity. And we want schools to be able to get a taste of what that looks like for their kids. In the last year, we've been particularly focused on making sure we bring on a set of schools that aren't already thinking about this. So perhaps state schools that don't have expert teachers, schools in parts of the country that haven't thought about these jobs and some more deprived areas. So we really want to make this an access and diversity issue where we're helping people to think about future skills. And there are some absolutely amazing stories of girls who have left school and have told their teachers that this was an experience that made them think about a set of careers they had not thought about before. We deliberately aim it for right before they make choices about, in the UK, their GCSEs. So making sure that they don't close down options that will then make it harder. So perhaps maths or computer science, that means they can have access to, to future careers. But in general, we just want people to get excited about this and we want it to be also something that signals to the wider sector that it would be great if they could think about the responsibility we all have to think about that diverse workforce of the future. So it's it's one of the best moments of my year.
3: Because a STEM... It's terrific. And getting that as a major pathway to cyber, is. we need to grow that market, particularly because of the cybersecurity skill shortage here and internationally. But it's not the only pathway. So in terms of your cybersecurity experts, the professionals that are working at the centre, what are the backgrounds? And I'm talking here women. I'm most interested to hear about the women and what their backgrounds have been.
1: It's pretty diverse, actually. Um, we both grow a lot of our own expertise in GCHQ, and we're really proud of some of the work we've done to try and make that a more gender-balanced workforce. And we've got a fantastic job share in one of our senior jobs, and they've been there uh, writing about that publicly recently. Um, we want to see more career paths that make it possible for people to, to move in and out of the profession. Uh, We've also brought a lot of people in from the rest of government. Um, So NCSC is a very public-facing part of GCHQ. And so we don't just need the deep technical expertise that we grow within the intelligence community. We also need actually some of the sectoral expertise to understand our critical national infrastructure. So we've got a a couple of amazing women who've come from the other parts of government, our our business and enterprise department, our digital and culture department, uh, our wider national security community, who bring that understanding of the customers we talk to. Um, but more widely across the sector, actually, part of what we need to do better is is to test on potential, to really try and understand where it is that people could make a really dramatic career change. So we also run a series of prizes and competitions to try and help generate innovation in the sector. And, and one of the prizes we gave at Cyber UK last year was actually to a company that's thinking about how you help to do mid-career changes. So how you get people to switch. So, for example... One of our big telecoms companies is thinking about how it shifts its workforce into the 21st century and how they perhaps take people whose jobs are no longer relevant and turn them into a skilled workforce for jobs that are actually part of that future. And I think there's a lot we can do. And I think testing and potential is certainly something that other nations have had real success with, the Israelis in particular, actually. So, so sometimes we need to really build those skills in the education system, get people doing the right you know, math, computer science, degrees. Um, but actually sometimes we need to help people make that jump Mid-career as well, and be able to to retrain, and I, I think it should be open to all of those possibilities. As you said, I you know I came to this latent from a non-technical background. I want to see people who've got a mix of those those minds. I do though really want to see more women in the deep technical jobs because I think there is a risk as we diversify that workforce that you still end up with the deep technical skills not being as diverse, and I think that's the long-term challenge. It's uh it's going to be. Important to build that pathway and actually help support them with mentors and and development schemes to do that.
3: Particularly when we're talking about codifying our values in the technology and having a female perspective in there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this technology needs to work for the whole of society. If the mm. people who are building it are from a narrow part of that, it's unlikely that they will have thought through all of those perspectives. And yeah. we talk in GCHQ about the mix of minds. We've always been very proud of the work we've done on neurodiversity, for example, and our openness to very different ways of thinking. You know, I want us to be genuinely open to thinking about as, as diverse a range of ways to tackle these problems as we possibly can, but also different perspectives in society. And I think that's one of the great strengths we have as as democracies. It's one of the things we really need to do for the future.
2: Lindy, I want to reflect on your career for a second. This is not the first time that you have worked in a very male-dominated environment. No, it isn't indeed. Right. And I understand that you led the country offices for the Department of International Development in the UK, in both Afghanistan and Iraq. So having served in Afghanistan myself, I know what those environments are like. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will immediately understand what we're saying. They're very male-dominated military environments, very masculine. You're a woman, a civilian and a leader in that environment. What was that like
1: for you? It was both a big challenge and quite a lonely one, if I'm honest at times, um, and hugely exciting at the same time. So you're right. Probably the most extreme version of this was when I ran the provincial reconstruction team in Helmand Province in 2009 and 10, which was right at the heart of the U.S. Marine surge into the province. So we had a very significant scale up of international military at the time. It was really under the spotlight, in particular of the U.S. media, and so there I was, a sort of Brit female civilian leader working with a huge military contingent. I was lucky enough to have done our UK higher command staff course, which was a real deep dive into military culture. And that gave me a good understanding of what our military regarded as key leadership strengths. And I think it's important to have a real understanding of what organizations think of as good leadership to be able to reflect some of that back in them, but to be able to do it in an authentic way that is still true to yourself. And that I think is, is what I would have thought of as the heart of the challenge I faced that year was was both being tough enough to be to be able to be a great civilian leader in that context in a largely military environment, because ultimately we were in you know a province of Afghanistan led by a civilian, um Governor Mangal at the time, um trying to build government capability in that region, it it was not going to be a military-driven, military-run country. And so actually the civilian perspective really mattered. And indeed the female perspective really mattered. So, so, you know, one of the mistakes I think people often made about Afghanistan was to to think that women didn't have a voice when in fact women had a very strong voice but less in the public sphere, I think. And in fact were hugely influential behind the scenes. I think the risk is sometimes people miss that. So I think there's something about being confident enough to be able to challenge the way that people have always operated or their perception of what a leader looks like, but do so with empathy for why it is that they themselves think of leadership in a particular way um, so that you help them on that journey of changing it. I've seen, for example, our own military make absolutely dramatic changes in the lifetime of my career um, in terms of the role women play in the military, but actually, for example, the approach we have to um, LGBT staff. So you know, so, we, so our military has literally gone from... You know, that being an issue for, for which people were excluded to an issue on which they are hugely included. And we're now very proud to see many of our senior officers marching the pride parades in London. And I think you know, if we can turn that around and make those societal changes, then I think you know, we can be really open to, to changing what we think leadership looks like. But I think it is quite lonely. And part of what I say to a woman that I mentor is you need to find the networks. You know, you need to be honest about the challenges. You need to work out how you build the support um, to be able to to do that. I think we probably all know it feels very different to be the only one in the room than it feels to be one of a minority or than it feels to be you know, sort of part of a balanced team or even in the majority. And I've been in all of those contexts. I know I behave differently when I'm the only one in the room. Um, part of what I think our job is, though, is to make sure that it feels that bit easier for the people who come after us. And I think as we all get more senior, part of our job is to make sure that it's it's easier for the next generation than it was for us. So two elements I want to touch on uh, as a result of that conversation. First up, what
3: makes for good leadership? And I'm talking universally here, not in a civilian environment, in a military environment, but what makes for good leadership? And also, how are you encouraging those women behind you to basically become great leaders. What sort of work are you involved in in terms of mentoring, in terms of networking? I know that networking is a big issue for the uh, many listeners and we've got a, a networking event happening later in the year. But uh, what are you doing on that front?
1: So to take your first question on what a good leader is, is I mean, I think probably the most important element, I think, is to have the confidence of your own vision of what good would look like. I, In a very practical way, I try and think through how I want to leave an organization to my successor. And actually also what I don't want my successor or my successor's successor to be ringing me up to ask about in 10 years time. So I both try and think about where I want to take an organization, what success would look like, but also actually what could derail that. What are the sort of left field challenges that you could face? So, for example, in this job, I suppose what I think about most viscerally, is you know, what are the things we need to do now that will mean my successors are able to still do cybersecurity effectively in 10 years' time? And those may be research challenges which won't come to fruition for nearly a decade. Um, they might be issues that are not that most urgent today, but they are the ones that will be really strategically important tomorrow. So it's that ability to not just think of the short to medium term, but actually think about the things that will be successful in the long run. I'm, I'm, I was really struck during the pandemic, talking to some of my colleagues actually in another part of our government that dealt with pensions and benefits about the fact that able to respond to the pandemic at the scale and speed they were was as a result of capability they built into the organization over the decade before, sometimes under, frankly, a lot of criticism with a number of setbacks and big programs. But it was those tough and unpopular capability decisions they made that had then set them up for success in a way that if they'd taken a shorter term perspective, they would really struggle. So I think there's something about the responsibility to think for the long term health of the organization. So so the vision for the future, but for the long term future and how to help your successors, not just how to be successful yourself. I spent a lot of time um, in contexts where we had very rapid turnover of leaders and people I valued thought less about their own term and more about how to make the, the collective group of people successful over a long period of time. But I think you also have to do that with a level of resilience So leadership is not a popularity contest and I think sometimes you have to be tough enough to make the decisions that are possibly unpopular in the short term but actually the right thing to do in the longer term but do so with empathy in a way that understands how people respond to change, why it is they're responding the way they are and I think that's uh, that's really key. In terms of what I'm doing, so I always have an eye to the talent management in my own organization and whether it is that every little decision that we're taking helps us to nudge towards an organization where everybody feels – Valued and included, but also that everybody feels as if they have got a career path for the future. So, for example, uh, we have, I think, done a pretty good job of bringing talent in from other organizations. One of the things we really need to focus on is how we grow the talent in our own organizations so people don't see an artificial glass ceiling and don't think the only way to be a successful senior leader is to come in from the outside. I've also spent quite a lot of time mentoring people across other parts of our government and, frankly, being willing to put the time into just telling the story of not just what I've done in my career, but how it's felt. When I was at a point, in fact, just before I went to Helmand in 2009, I went on a senior leadership induction course for new ambassadors in the foreign office. And I sat next to a man who was going to one of our most senior ambassadorial postings. And the person at the front was talking about imposter syndrome. And I saw him nodding. Um, And I realized this incredibly senior man who was going to one of our most senior ambassadorships thought that applied to him. And I I felt so much more comfortable by the way I felt knowing that it wasn't just me. And actually, I think sharing that sense of what it feels like, you know, the fact we all have things that scare us or intimidate us, that doesn't mean we should run away from them. That means we should mm. figure out how to build the skills to do them. There are always things we're better at and worse at. Part of it is being okay with that. You're thinking about how you play to those strengths and how you build those weaknesses. I think there's a huge amount of defusing the myths that you somehow need to be perfect or arrive as a, you know, fully formed leader, it's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to be on a journey. And we all feel like that. And I think sharing how that feels helps people to take those first steps. In an early part of my career, I remember somebody saying to me, your predecessor was great. Um, I thought he was amazing. I couldn't imagine being him, but I can imagine being you. And that helps me to think of a possibility of doing your job in a way I couldn't before. And I think it's partly about giving people role models that look like them. And I think that really does matter. It's very hard when you look at an organization and don't see anybody who looks like you Mm. to believe that organization values you. And I think therefore we have to have a more diverse leadership to some of these organizations. That matters in national security but we also have to help the people along the journey believe that it's okay to be imperfect as you go to take the setbacks and learn from them as well as to then to enjoy the successes
2: that's a- amazing it is indeed a journey and i think you're right a lot of us feel that we aren't yet fully formed i say often on this pod that i don't feel like i'm yet fully formed but i'm getting there
1: i don't think it ever ends <laughs> no. but actually but i think part of it is to enjoy the journey right yeah, so, exactly. so, so I mean, just so, enjoy. so so part of the story i tell about my career is this is definitely not an intentional career i could pretend to you that this this is a, a fantastic plan. But actually, a lot of what I did in my mid-career was about seizing the opportunities nobody else wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I ended up in some pretty tough jobs almost literally because nobody else was prepared to do them. And in many ways, that felt quite safe because the organization I was working for didn't have a lot of choice. They had to <laughs> accept me, I was the best, I was the best they were gonna get. I had an almost vertical learning curve in some of those jobs as a result of that. And I was supported by my organisations to to do that. But it gave me opportunities. So part of what I I say to people is don't be scared to take the opportunities. Even if they look a bit out of your lane, you'll learn something from them and actually enjoying that journey, running towards the things that interest you. That's okay. It doesn't have to be a, a perfectly planned career. It can be about being in the right place at the right time and making the most of it.
2: Yeah, we've spoken here before around having that yes mindset, which is taking the opportunities that are presented to you. As much as possible, say yes to the opportunity and just see where it goes. Exactly. Before we wrap up, Lindy, I want to ask you, you are clearly fighting the good fight. Thinking of the future, what gets you excited when you think about the future of national security and do you think the challenges can be overcome?
1: I am an optimist. So I have spent my career in an era when – there have been some extraordinarily positive transformations in the world. So we are now living in a world where there are far fewer people living in extreme poverty than when I started my career and certainly when I was born, um, where far more people have opportunities that they could never have dreamed of and have lives that have a prospect of better choices for their children. So having spent much of my career in international development makes me a massive optimist about the world, albeit I think we are currently living in a pretty complicated and messy time. So I am fundamentally optimistic that most people want a world that is more peaceful, more stable, gives their own children better prospects. Um, And I think there is every possibility that we can continue to to make that the case. I think there are some pretty massive geostrategic challenges at the moment. I think that we are now living in a world in many ways that is coming to the end of a sort of – of a set of challenges around counterterrorism, regional issues, moving into world geostrategic challenges and competition – which I think will pose big challenges for all of our governments. But they're fascinating and interesting ones that I have every confidence that we can run towards and tackle. I think we will need to be more imaginative in future about what national security means. I think we will in particular need to be much more inclusive of our economic colleagues in understanding what, what a world that is that offers economic possibilities, but also in a way that is resilient to some of the security threats we face and how we do that collectively. So I worry that sometimes we have conversations in silos about the global economy or about technology or about national security. And for me, and I think one of the the things we tried to push towards in our integrated review was really seeing that in a holistic way. And I think that's also something I see being done here in Australia. So for me, you can't really separate the sort of overseas and domestic challenges the sort of resilience and national security challenges. We need to see them collectively. And I think the point is they have to be about helping us to be in a world that's more prosperous for everybody as well as a world that's more secure for everybody. So I think that will mean we need to be more open-minded about the kind of skills we need. We certainly need to be more open-minded about the kind of diversity of perspectives that we need. Um, And I think that's partly why that set of international conversations matters so much. I mean, as I said at the start, literally being in a different geography, looking at this region from a different perspective brings a different set of conversations than we're having in Western Europe at the moment with a Russia-Ukraine conflict in Eastern Europe. That helps us have a conversation about lessons, about challenges, about perspectives that is incredibly healthy and I think will make us all better at tackling the challenges of tomorrow.
2: Lindy, thank you. Thank you for coming on the pod. It's been amazing to speak to you. Keep fighting the good fight and I'm glad Australia's got you on our side. Thank you very much indeed and it's fantastic to be here. So Meg... Key takeouts from you. Fantastic conversation. So many key takeouts, but there's two things I really want to focus in on. Lindy reaffirmed the theme that we've heard time and time again around networking and having a really good supportive network around you so that you're not feeling like you're on your own. And then the other point that she made was around understanding the landscape, understanding the people around you, the people that you're leading, and having a vision for the future. So, leaving leaving a good legacy behind, leaving things better than how you found them. I really love those messages. How about you, Gaye? Yeah, they were great messages for me. uh, Three. First,
3: don't be scared to take advantage of opportunities. Second very powerful message it's okay to be imperfect and the third one for me was enjoy the journey absolutely great thank you very much for joining us for today's conversation with lindy cameron we look forward to you tuning in for our next conversation with another inspiring female leader in national security please keep the feedback coming and don't forget to enter the competition for a
0: tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts
3: free ticket for the Winds live event on the 10th of November here in Canberra. Click on the link in the podcast notes and good luck.